Hello, my name is Cristina Zanato and I'm taking Ian and Gemma into the caves for the Big Scuba Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Thanks, Christina, for coming back to the Big Scoop podcast again, joining us for the, the, the next part of our conversation. Let's talk about cave dive because they also the other thing you're known for. So how did you get into cave dive? Um, the first cavern dive that I did, which is usually the first room before you enter a cave, was my 11th ever log dive. And it was actually, again, with my mentor, Ben Rose, the same mentor for the sharks. Yeah. Um, the cavern was called Ben's Cave, and it was dedicated to him because although the cavern had been known by humans since the Lucayans and the Aurochs had inhabited these islands and used as a freshwater supply and as a burial ground, Ben was the first one that in the 1960s, in the kind of like infancy of scuba diving, he decided it was a great idea to go in an underground water puddle, you know, in uh, yeah. In the darkness, but that's just why it was named after him. Everybody knew about this uh, place, but uh, nobody had decided to go in. So it was my 11th dive, and I was introduced in this uh, clear water. I still remember I was doing my uh, buoyancy check in about five meters of depth in the open water. There's a big rock where you need to do your buoyancy check. And I looked up, and Ben looked like he was a floating in absolute space, like in nothingness. Although the Bahamian water is clear, the Bahamian cave water, it's clearer, especially the fresh water. And he just looked like he was floating in absolute nothingness. And I, I remember thinking, I want to look like that. I want to do that. So then we did the tour and I absolutely was mesmerized by the beauty of it. I had to take, obviously, wait a little bit. I became a cave diver in 1996. I had to travel to Florida to find an instructor to become uh, a cave diver and then came back on the island. And I found myself, as I've done many times uh, through my careers, at the top of the food chain, meaning I was the most expert person on the island, although I only had like 16 cave dives under my belt. And like everything I did, I basically... um, went to it uh, in a gradual and small way because there was no one else to refer to. Ben had stopped cave diving many years before, even before we did a cavern tour. But that was the the trigger to cave diving. It was that cavern tour that I did. Uh, What I found in it is uh, it's mystery and beauty. But what I realized I found in it, I always imagine myself being in an ancient library and find (laughs) one big book. I imagine one of these old binded leather books that you open and kind of like has yellow crinkly pages and you just open it up and it goes <laughs> and as you open all this dust comes out and inside yeah. it there's the history of our planet and it's engraved in, in these uh, caves it's engraved in the shapes of the tunnels it's engraved I can hear the water dripping through the decoration I can imagine when the water wasn't there and so I looked at the I look at the rock formation and I imagine well if this was dry could I climb down this way because when you're diving you float by it but you don't yeah. realize sometimes it's an 80 foot slope and you're like oh how would I climb down this slope like some cave diver that cave cavers now cave divers have to do in england right and in all your gear and all the gear so yeah. 
I started looking at this as like this history of the planet. And so as I start swimming through the tunnels, all I kept feeling I was doing was reading. And then it makes you wonder, how did this happen? How did that happen? Why is this decoration shaped like this? Why is this floored like that? And that is the fascination with cave diving. I then discovered the connection of cave diving as a freshwater reservoirs in the Bahamas, the freshwater lens that sits on top of the saltwater lens that comes in from the ocean, mm-hmm. and then discovered that the water travels, and then discovered that the water travels from the cave, which is inland to the open ocean, through these tunnels, maybe comes out into the mangroves, but then the mangroves are actually homes to nursery grounds, and baby sharks, and sharks reproducing, and corals growing, and and it's just the intricate uh, relationship of the cave itself, its tunnels and all its ramifications then became even more interconnected with the ocean. It's like umbilical cord that goes from the mother and all the blood system into the placenta and you can disconnect the two. Mm. So I've got a couple of questions following on. Yes. So the first thing that came to my mind is you're talking about a cave which was used originally for their fresh water and also for burying the relatives mm-hmm. <laughs> makes you wonder right so we're you talking say? about before the discovery of the americas by amerigo vespucci and christopher columbus so, so not a couple of weeks ago then uh several thousand yeah a couple of weeks ago so, several thousands years ago the arak and lucayans were thought to leave the mexican peninsula and come up through the caribbean and settling into obviously the Bahamian Islands. There were fairly peaceful population of fishermen. Uh, there's remains of them living on uh, stilt homes and basically living off uh, the ocean and this very harsh land. So the fresh water were obviously the source of their uh, drinking water. Most likely they also use, you know, rainwater. But as they are connected to what would be the Central American cultures, they still bury their dead into the water, which in the American Central American culture, there's this concept of life came out of the underground uh, mountains, underwater mountains, and goes back to it. Uh, to this day, there are still remains, especially in one of these caves. Actually, I had to hide them. The remain, skeletal remains, skulls and bones of the original inhabitants. Did you have any trouble like from the authorities about that? Because aren't they sort of regarded as ancient burial sort of sites? No, I have permits. I have yeah. full authority permits through the Bahama National Trust. Um, I have full authorization to go inside the caves and do conduct work for them. I was actually asked to move the bones to be like in a more secure place, not yeah. less accessible. Not that it's just before they were a little bit more uh, visible and now they're less visible and they're just more in a secret corner. Uh, there haven't been touched. Some that were pulled out for studies uh, were pulled out again through um, permits. If I never pull anything out, if I'm asked to pull something out, it usually comes from either the Museum of Antiquities or the Bahama National Trust and have a permit. But it's good that the government, the the people in charge um, on the islands have, have got good control. So so someone like me, if I was a cave diver, couldn't just turn up and go, right, well, I'm going to go into those caves. There's an element, there's a good element of control there. Yes and no. So some caves are completely in uh, uh, open land, especially the ocean. Blue holes, you're in the ocean. They're not controlled by anyone. Um, 
We hope they're being controlled by people's responsibilities and capabilities. Some of the caves, especially this one, is completely under the Bahama National Trust and is completely yeah. guarded. So both entrances are guarded by a by someone. But uh, being the Bahamas, I mean, supervision is uh, enforcement is tough because of the workforce is not that big. So also for safety reasons, we move the we move the bones. But yes, this cave is actually not open to the public. I'm currently in the process of writing a request of permit to guide people. Uh, but uh, the list of things that I'm putting into the permit are pretty high uh, for this specific cave. Other caves. I usually, I still already have the capability of guiding people. So approximately how deep and then how, when you get to the bottom, then how far along do you do you go in that cave, that cave system? That cave system is not very deep. It's actually very comfortable. It's a maximum depth, 72 feet, about 21 meters. So on a rebreather, I can do a four hour swim dive without accruing any decompression. So it's, uh, in a certain way, it's uh, very good, but it's also very demanding because I'm basically four hour continuously cave diving. It's not two hours cave dive and two hours deco. I'm constantly on a cave dive, but it allows me to do a four, four and a half hour cave dive without reaching any decompression. As far as distance, the cave has a total uh, system of about 33,000 lines. And depending on the mission of the dive or what I want to do on the dive, I don't want to really say mission, but like what I would like to accomplish on the dive, um, I can be within two to three thousand feet. Sometimes I can just be a thousand feet inside a cave, but I'm um, going laterally. And so I'm fixing things or changing lines or collecting yeah. samples or images or anything like that. But I'm be down there for a couple of hours. For our non-cave dive and listeners you said how many lines there are but roughly would you say are we talking a couple of kilometers long when you get to the bottom because like andy when he was on he was telling us uh, some of the caves are like here sort of four kilometers long in length that he was doing uh the longest that this cave goes linear is about a kilometer and a half uh, the total lines in this specific cave is about 10 kilometers. Right? So is that just no. into kind of different tunnels that maybe don't go anywhere? Yes. So it's uh, if, if you were to look at it, it will look like a capillary system of our body. So it has all these little yeah. things. Um, the difficulty of this cave is specifically this one, although it's a shallow and a kilometer half doesn't sound too much. It's a very low cave. So it's a side mount cave only, and mm-hmm. it has a lot of microbial growth. And sometimes you're constantly swimming between the transition between fresh and salt water, which is called the halocline. It's super decorated. So sometimes you like slither. You can even kick and you just have to slither and turn and maneuver. And, and then visibility drops and all this stuff. So it's a very uh, demanding mentally and physical cave. It's a cave that I recommend maybe on two people at the time, right? It's not a cave where you go in and the tunnels open up in the 30 meters or 20 meters diameters or anything like that. It's, and it's constantly demanding. It never stops. 
requirements. So you're talking about sort of really clambering through on some of those. There's no clambering. You still have to be delicate. You can go around the floor because the floor has like a 10 inches of fluffy sediment that sometimes yeah. just moving my hand to reach my mask, it fluffs up the entire sediment. So the, the problem with sometimes our world is a lot of people looked into maybe too much. And this is especially for non-cave divers, but even for cave divers, I hear, you know, like the, oh, how far is it and how deep is it? Sometimes a cave uh, difficult is not just is how far in you are, how deep you are, but it's also the nature of the cave, um, how you have to maneuver yourself through, how small is it, how much it allows you to turn around on things like that. There's areas where you once you commit to go through, you have to constantly go through to reach another area where you can turn around and come back out. Everything has steps. I think we talked yeah. about this with other things. When you learn how to drive, um, uh, coming from Italy, the last place I went after I learned how to drive was the Italian highway. People are absolute nuts. And, and I'm still anxious on driving on Italian highways, the way they zip through traffic, the way they come up behind you. And if you're going, even if you're going at the speed limit of 130 kilometers an hour, they come up behind you at 150. And instead of slowing down, they come up your butt and flash their lights, flash, flash, flash. But yes. maybe you can go to the right because there's another car. And, and it's the same thing with cave diving. The problem is with cave diving is, a lot of people have this misconception that the caves are either too small or too dark. So I don't want my talk to make people believe that that's it. I mean, there's caves out there that are absolutely clear and beautiful and spacious. I have those caves here on the island. Specifically, Ben's Cave is a demanding cave. Um, your caves, each cave has its own difficulties and challenges. If you were to cave dive in Finland or Norway, chances are you would have added issues also of low or low temperature. Um, or the cave in uh, Russia is big and spacious and clear, but then the water temperature is zero. So you have, and water, the temperature outside might be minus 30, minus 40. So you have different issues. Um, I really don't like when people go, oh, these caves are easier than the other caves are harder. Is Each one has its own complexity. Now, some caves will allow for divers to build up a better experience before venturing into more advanced caves. Okay, so how do you prepare for a cave coming up that you want to dive and say that's not a particularly well-known one? You, so you're kind of going into the unknown. How do you mentally prepare yourself for that? Well, I, I, know, I go into the unknown. I literally go into a place where nobody else has ever been before. I've been in holes that have never been explored before. Um, I prepare like for any other cave dive. So I'm very meticulous with my gear. I am very meticulous with my plan. And I'm extremely meticulous with my bailout um, program. The uh, cave community teaches something very, very important. It's any diver can call any diver at any time for any reason without any consequences. And some of these dives, you might have to call them after you spend two to three hours to arrive at the edge of the cave to enter. So I usually use uh, a basic concept of, okay, I'm going to reach the maximum. I If I've never been in the cave and I have no understanding of where it goes and I, I usually use air and the simple fact is air allows me to go a little bit deeper without having to worry about oxygen toxicity due to an hyperoxic mix like enriched yeah. air nitrox um, 
it obviously has limited limiting factors than on the nitrogen narcosis, but is a little bit more forgiving on the oxygen toxicity. So between the two, I personally make a choice into going air, no oxygen toxicity, just be aware it has a little bit of nitrogen narcosis enhanced. Those are the two, uh, between the two on the scale, I'm like, yeah, prefer a little bit of nitrogen narcosis. Then goes beyond those limits, I'll come out and replan and remix. And so you enter then the world either of enriched your nitrox if the depth allows that so you can go longer without risk of decompressions or limiting your decompression and if it goes deeper then you go into the trimix so that's how i first approach a hole that has never been dived before is air um these are my limits this is what i'm gonna do uh, these are my limits of no decompressions and once i have a feel for the for the environment is it brittle? Is it uh, solid? Is it bad visibility? Good visibility? Is it big? Is it small? Then I come out and replan for the next dive. So it's like a recon kind of dive, very conservative. Is it quite a long process? Obviously, you've got to plan, enter the cave, then come out again, replan from what you found. So the exploration of a, the start of a cave, how long does that kind of take generally? Is it depends on the cave. So some of the caves that we've been working on, uh, we found them through. Google Earth and then is it might take like two days just to find a path through the forest or how to get there and then how to walk there. The first time we went to one of the these caves um, called Anaconda Swamp, uh, the hurricane had just hit. So not only there was an old road that I remember, I already been there 10 years earlier, but I didn't really venture in. I just venture into the hole. But my experience, that was different. So I said, let's try this again. And to arrive there the first time with a car, because we didn't know really what we would find, instead of trying to clear a kilometer road, we actually hiked with a gear a kilometer from the car to the hole, which was like treasure terrain for the last 700 meters. And then, sorry, 300 meters, I do apologize, for the last 300 meters. And then did one dive, which was a reckon dive, went down on the bottom of the hole. There was hydrogen sulfide, bed visibility, cross through the darkness. I saw a lead, hit 100 feet. I was like, hey, look, there's there's a lead here. And came out, hiked all the way back. And then the next time we cut down another 300 meters of trees that have fallen into there was already a path it was an old old path so we cut down the trees that fallen from the hurricane and then hiked another 700 meters and then after that we spent two days clearing the road i said okay we need to get as close as possible to carry all the gear that we're carrying the rebreather the camera the tanks the oxygen tanks because each trip, we can only carry so much. The terrain is a mix of, of very brittle, sharp rocks. So we have to use boots. We can go with, the, you know, like our dry suit boots or anything. And then the last 150 meters, it's a swamp where you sink down like a knee level. So the entire trip ends up being now driving with a car. You stop in this little area and then you carry, let's say, your gear bag with one tank for about... Uh, 150 200 meters through the sharp rocks and you find the last little area which is dry and you drop the stuff there then you go back to the car and drop everything there then you go back to the car and drop back it's usually about three trips 
And then you go to the water. So you bring stuff to the water, the edge, and then you come back there and you put on your dry suit. That's one hole in itself. So that'd be you and Kevin. Kevin. Or okay. I used, I've done a lot by myself. But do you have then a team who are on the outside, just in case you need support from the outside? Do, do people know where you are? They do know where we are. I leave that with someone. But no, I have no support. We are our own Sherpas. We are our own divers. We are our own support team. That's the reason we have to be extremely careful in everything. We carry, we have like a backpack, then oxygen kit in the car, first aid kit and everything. How far away is your nearest chamber? Miami. Wow. Really? That's That's for any dive, any day. Yeah. It's not the cave dive that's going to get you bent. It could be anything. It could be a 50-foot dive up on a reef that gets you bent. The nearest chamber yeah. is Miami. Which is how far from you? It's uh, a less than an hour flight, but if you're bent, you need to order especially a pressurized plane. Yeah. That's why I, I have, you know, have we have Dan insurance um, simply because if, if you are bent and you need evacuation or anything like that is way beyond what your wallet can afford. Yeah. To me, it's absolutely insane to be a diver without the DEN insurance for evacuation yeah. of emergency plan. Now, the evacuation from the hole itself will be a different kind of ordeal. And again, that's the reason why we have to be so careful and planning so meticulously and not pushing the limits. Brings it home. The planning is the key thing, isn't it? Even before you start the adventure. Well, a lot of people say plan the, plan the dive and dive the plan. And then, you know, we definitely plan the dive and, and dive the plan. And we also sometimes uh, forego the plan and just decide not to do the dive, depending on the circumstances. There's a lot of factors. Uh, we, are at the, uh, we are at the forefront of exploration. Uh, it could be something as silly as a thunderstorm. You're five, six hundred meters from the car and you're in a totally bare area um, where there's absolutely nothing. I can actually send you some pictures if you want to put those one up. And and if you if you surface and there's a thunderstorm and you're all clad in metal and all of that, that alone is to be taken in consideration. So before we leave the day to go cave dive in a hike for a kilometer, we're thinking, okay, what's the weather today? Because yeah. the last thing you want to do is being caught up in the middle of out there yeah. in a thunderstorm. So it's not just specifically diving related. It's, it's everything. It takes quite a lot of uh, um, information and planning and, and thinking. Now, with time, we've become better and better. I've done this for you know over a dozen years or so. Certain things are already in my mind. I already know this. I remember that. I um, We have season for which we go to certain areas and season for which we don't go. Um, some of these holes, they're so far into the um, land of the mangroves or, or the swamps that, like, comes April, it's absolutely unforgiving to try to hike there because of the heat and the humidity and the bugs. So we reserve that for our, quote-unquote, winter. And then we focus, for example, on the ocean blue holes in the summertime where the conditions are easier The Winter storms don't steer up as much the waves. It's easier to find them because it's less rough and things like that. So we also have that. And that's where the exploration sometimes is um, hindered by all these factors that we need to take in consideration. We might have now anaconda swamp is on hold until the temperature will cool down again. Yeah, yeah. the seasons and you can kind of balance it out. So you've got, yeah, best of both worlds 
over the year. Yes. So when, you, when you're going in these caves um, for the first time, did it feel a bit eerie at times? It's not eerie. It's extremely careful. Some of the areas may have uh, some delicate ceilings. A lot of the ceilings are made of fossilized corals and some of the limestone might be a little bit more brittle. So it's, it's a matter of uh, checking. So when I enter, I usually pan and observe and try to realize how the rocks are placed, how everything is settled, what kind of sediment. Never eerie. It's actually very exciting. I can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a thrilling and it's beautiful. And I never felt scared, cautious for sure, yeah. but never scared. I've never been afraid of doing that. And so what is your favorite cave complexes? <laughs> Ben's Cave holds a special place in my heart because it is absolutely stunning. I mean, down there, the amount of decorations and the variety of visibility and sediments to this day still uh, takes my breath away. And I do believe there's even more cave. Uh, we're currently in the process of uh, remapping the cave system with a digital system uh, called uh, a little machine called Nemo through a software called Ariane's Line. Right. And we're also doing interactive map of the same system, something that uh, Sebastian Kischer, the guy that created all of this, hasn't even launched yet. But we have been, you know, better testing it for uh, since July last year. And uh, the more I dive Ben's cave, the more I want to dive in. But like I said, uh, each cave has its own unique um, attraction. Uh, Anaconda Swamp so far has halted our exploration at 600 feet in, which is not much, and it peaks down at 190 feet, so it goes down to about 55 meters to then come back up. It has orange water, hydrogen sulfide, it smells like rotten eggs and absolutely atrocious to get there. But if somebody said, if the conditions were ideal, where would you like to go? I said, oh, I want to go back to Anaconda Swamp. Anaconda Swamp holds... Um, a unique beauty on a unique um, it holds a couple of secrets in there as well and it's just absolutely fascinating every time I surface from that dive it just makes me feel so good so each dive is unique but Ben's I would say if you force me into an answer is Ben's is the one that I want to go back to over and over again when you've got the different sediment and the bacterial and the hydrogen different gases in the cave naturally how does that affect you? Do you have to take that into consideration? Absolutely. So mm. uh, different gases have different reactions. So some of them can actually be uh, toxic for the diver. Tannic acid is an acid produced by the decomposing of organic and inorganic matter. And usually it's uh, it would be compared to a tea. You know how you put uh, tea leaves inside hot water. So as the water warms up and the stuff decomposes, it creates this uh, red, reddish brown light. And to take that in consideration, it's not too bad. What it does is reduces the visibility at the entrance. But if the tannic acid tends to travel into the cave, then it reduces the visibility obviously inside the cave. You're now diving in tea water. Uh, the one that is most concerned for us here in the Bahamas is hydrogen sulfide, which is a waste product of a, a bacteria. And it has a toxic um, consequences on the human body because it can absorb through the skin. Now, yeah. even in high concentrations, it's not a problem if you're just traveling through it. So usually it's a layer. And I've traveled through some thick layers. The advantage is 
that you're just traveling through for a few seconds is not a big deal. What you need to make sure is that you don't decompress in it. So if you have a thick hydrogen sulfide in one of your massive decompression stops, then it becomes almost like um, impossible to dive the cave or you need to reconsider. Uh, we all wear dry suits, but absorption can still come through the face and the yeah. hands and all of that. Uh, we then have a bacteria, a microbial growth, and the microbial is basically all sorts of different coloration and sediments, and those basically steered up the visibility. Um, it's like sometimes diving in orange, uh, in like in, press, in fresh pressed orange juice, and, and the visibility can be like basically the one in front of your masks. Again, I, I have some parallels video that I can send you, you know, what basically my eyes see. So there you have to be considering that as you go in and you know that some even if you're in a rebreather, some might be dislodged just by your simple passing, by the wake that you create with your body as you thin through. You need to take in consideration then how you are going to negotiate when you come out. So it's mm. basically an awareness of the cave. You look forward, but then sometimes especially when I go in a new system, I stop and I look back and I say, what happened after I came through? And I watch what happened behind me after I came through. And that gives me, again, a mindset of when I turn around, how is it going to look? Yeah. Yeah. If I go through some small spaces, especially that I never done before, I'll negotiate through first, right? And instead of continuing what I do, and I'm going to secure the line, turn around and negotiate out so that I'm comfortable in my mind that not only I went through on the way in, but now I know how to negotiate my way out. Then I go through again and then I continue. So mm -hmm. different things that we do to deal with all of this. So with your technical diving, close uh, circuit rebreather diver, when did you first get into the technical diving? I went into technical diving when the technical diving word didn't exist. Um, How did that work? Then? 1996, I became a cave diver who had to learn about, about advanced nitrox decompression procedure. I did normoxy trimix and all of that, and those are the tools for which I could then enter the caves, which is what I wanted to do. I'm a cave diver. That is what I am. Technical diving then is is a is a tool if we want to put it into these words for then being able to do what I really like to do, which is going inside the cave, which requires anything that is different from recreational diving. So I would say 1996 is when I started technical diving. Um, but at the time, the, the word didn't even exist. When you wanted to do something, people say, well, this is what you have to do and this is what you have to learn. And then later, I think the technical diving word was um, kind of like created. Um, they go hand in hand. Anything that you want to do beyond the recreational diving limits becomes, in a certain way, technical diving. Mm. So all of that, from the rebreather to side mount to wrecks to beyond 130 feet, uh, 40 meters, a single tank diving. Mm. And sometimes the boundaries kind of like blend a little bit. But Do you have any preference on side mount or the rebreather system? I'm using a KISS Sidewinder, which is a rebreather side mount. Um, before the rebreather, the rebreathers came on the market as a side mount, I have had no interest in rebreathers. And this goes back to another talk. Sometimes people ask me, oh, should, what should I do next? Side mount or rebreather? And to me, gear and training is a tool, is not a, an end, an end uh, goal, right? I don't want a rebreather just to be on a rebreather. A rebreather is 
additional work and additional risks and additional responsibility and never mind costs. But once my cave diving arrived at the four to six extra tanks, right? No, sorry, the two to four extra tanks. I'm carrying six tanks and I have to do preparatory dives. Then I have to look into a rebreather. But when I started looking into the rebreathers, there were all these giant mini fridges and monsters that you carry in your back. And the caves I dive do not allow that for the longest. So I was an open circuit side mount cave diver. When then specifically the Kissa Sidewinder came out, which is a side mount rebreather, and you wear it with your full side mount uh, kit, that is when I said, okay, now I need that side, that that rebreather. It was just a tool. I, I could have never put another of those the other ones on the market at the time. So I am a yeah. side mount rebreather diver. It's amazing. I mean, some of the things that I can do now that. Uh, I think maybe in the past out of lack of experience, but sometimes even uh, a different gear. Um, I am 5'5". Five five. Um, I'm not, you know, in Italy, I'm considered a big person. In the United States, I'm considered petite, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not a giant. And uh, when I first entered even just the side mount world, the harnesses that were out there were built for your average, you know, uh, medium to large American dude. And I say, dude, really with that intent, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, quite high and different weight and a different broad yeah. shoulders and chest and the dry suits as well. And I always had to adapt. I always had to adapt to the gear. I never had gear that adapted to me. I always had to adapt to the gear, make it work. I, I was just swallowed by my gear. As soon as I put gear on, the dry suit neck came up to my face because the chest was too big. And the harness hit on the back of my head and gave me neck pain because it was inflating too much for the size of my short torso. Where, you know, on a six foot two man, they go, oh, I don't feel the bladder infl inflating behind my neck. It's like, well, of course you don't. Because the distance between your neck and your tailbone is, you know, like the, the entire length of my body almost. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. Nowadays, the designs out there, the manufacturers have really stepped up their game. And I have a female cut, you know, like super fit dry suit. When I put it on, it's like am I with the undergarment and again the undergarments changed yeah. in in a drastic way uh fourth element was one of the the one i used is was at the foreground of creating these compact undergarments that don't need inflation and all of that but it was for me a game changer in a certain way when when i, I start finding gear that actually uh, became minimalistic and actually started to fit to my body the dry suit and the harness were two of the biggest ones Although I'd done a lot of work before, it was really interesting. Once I put on the smaller stuff on, all of a sudden I was like, hey, look, I can move my head behind and back. And I don't have to fight with this ginormous dry suit. It actually almost zipped me further into what I was doing. I think that's the whole advantage, but it obviously is creating, uh, it helped a lot. As technology moves, the computers, the algorithms and all that, I can only be grateful. Um, for what these tools allow me to do. It, they don't substitute experience. They don't substitute knowledge and adults. They will never substitute our brain. But they do allow us to venture, I think, further and further than what we could before when we were diving in beehive wetsuit with, you know, air tanks and written tables on a slate. What um, dive computer do you normally use for if you're going in the cave? I uh, both for my recreational and my uh, 
technical uh, diving. I use the sheer water. I have the Taric for most of my recreational, and then I use the Nerd two and the Petrol for my rebreather, so they're redundant. Do you teach um, CCR closed circuit rebreathers, and do you teach side mount as well? Yes. So I I am. Uh, you can say I am a technical diving instructor, so I can teach gases, advanced nitrox, decompression procedures. I teach the full range of cave diving up to advanced cave diver. I teach the side mount, both at the recreational level and at the uh, what will be a technical level. And I am a rebreather instructor, both for the side mount, the sidewinder specifically. Uh, instructors for rebreathers are unit specific. And then for the Kiss of Spirit, which is a back-mounted rebreather that has a similar functionality as a sidewinder. So in terms of the depth that you've gone to, what's the deepest kind of dive or the deepest cave you've ever been into? I don't share that. For the simple fact that depth like gear to me are a, a consequence of where I want to go. And I haven't been that deep, to be honest with you. But the, the thing is, once we start putting up depth, uh, my fear is as a leader, as an example, sometimes it may inspire others to want to reach that or to reach beyond that. So if a cave is deep, I will adapt to the depth of the cave and use a trimix, normoxy trimix, hypoxic trimix, whatever I have been uh, used in the past. If the cave is shallow, I'm actually happier. So I can be down there for, like I said, four hours without having to worry about my decompression schedule. Yeah. Um, I haven't done anything, you know, crazy. I hope you forgive me if I don't share the depth. With your camera work when you're within the caves, so are you a qualified photographer or do you have anybody like Kevin behind you doing the photography, videoing? Uh, both. So I have, uh, I, I have my own camera system. And I've learned to take pictures and videos. I have, I use a GH5 uh, um, and inside a Isotta housing. And then I use video lights and strobes. So both at the same time. And I basically switch between taking videos or pictures depending on the dive. And I do, uh, when we do our um, interactive map, I'm the one that does a camera work. So the GH5 can take 4K videos. So we have 4K videos of the entire passages and the tunnels beautifully lit beautifully you know just looks fantastic and then we carry uh, both uh, paralens on our helmets so that we can also capture what we're doing um for us it's been very very important during the mapping of the system because yeah. sometimes we're looking at the survey and if something doesn't match we can review the entire process you can sit there and it captures everything you can see the line you can see the markers you put you would do you can see um i've seen in the past mistakes i've done during the exploration uh, it's really unique you can just review your entire process um kevin then can take videos of uh, it's been taking videos of the shark work that i do doing that with each other but the photography is all mine so direct photography is mine so one of the things maybe we need to touch also is that kevin and i sometimes also do solo cave dive like we all go and then we'll split and just go each one of our own mission well, yeah, I've done solo cave diving before Kevin appeared and many others appeared in my life. I've been solo cave diving for most of my life, most of my career. It uh, is a contentious issue, I know. No, it, it, it is it is a t- it is a contentious issue. It, it depends. I think a lot of it depends also 
on the life circumstances. You said once you start having then a responsibility of you know family or friends or like my pop is at home or anything like that, maybe uh, that has to change a little. Usually in cave diving, you'll find that cave divers go solo cave diving. It's better to go solo than to go with someone who does not have the experience of where you're going. Our tendency is to leave a message with someone, even if they're not cave divers, to say, oh, today I'm going here. I'll text you when I'm out of the cave. And I've done that through the years with friends on the island. Oh, I'm heading to mermaids. And, oh, I'm out of the cave from mermaids. And I mean, I'm still dripping wet. And the first thing I do is go to the yeah. car and text on the phone. Uh, before the phones worked like this, what did we do? Uh, we went cave diving, and when you drove back, you yeah. picked up the landline and said, hey, by the way, I'm back. We went to school, and our parents could not check on us when I was a kid. That's true, yeah. And it's a very different world, but it, the solo cave diving is uh, is always on the, on the edge of conversations, and there's both parties. There's the one that says, well, you know, if you're a two- or three-man team, there are two or three brains. At the same time, teams have proven to fail. People have separated, and people have caused uh, distress to one another in the team separation issue. Uh, a person that goes to solo cave diving has to be responsible for uh, their choice and understanding what they're doing. It does not mean solo cave diving. I'm not going to tell anyone. I can still tell someone and I can still inform someone. But in that moment, going solo, that means you accept the fact that when something goes wrong, you're totally reliant on yourself and on your brain. And there's no other brain that can make up for you. But at the end of the day, when you're in a cave, your body can only help you so much. Is how you help yourself that basically uh, takes you out. You could then pull out different situations, which you said, well, if the body had not been there, the outcome would have been death. And it, that is the responsibility of the person of saying, when I do that, that is the consequence. There's no gray areas, is there? You either, it either goes to plan or don't. I mean, it's a tough one, right? Is it right that I go solo cave diving? Well, this is better than going in with somebody that is not experienced to go cave diving. And sometimes some caves, especially exploration is one of those, is um, I may go somewhere where there's a hole and I say, okay, I'll go in first and have a look and see if there's even room for me to turn around before you follow me. Yeah. Uh, two people stir up more sediment. Uh, two people make the cave smaller. So depending on the situation, you'll find out that quite a lot of elite uh, cave divers, and especially explorers, sometimes prefer to do things on their own first to, to figure it out what is the environment, what is the situation. And Kevin and I do quite a lot of solo cave diving. We may drive to the same cave together, but we're a team of two and we had a lot of work to do. So sometimes we even split the chores and we have like a start time and a return time and we have a contingency plan if the return time is not, that's the best that we can do. But some of the cave dives I do uh, especially in the beginning, we're not at the level at which Kevin could do. He still had to collect his experience and do his work. Have you had any kind of scary moments in cave situations or any close calls or because of the planning? Has that never been? No, uh, never really uh, close calls, deeper say. I've, been, I've had moments where my heart rate might have gone up a little bit. And then what I had to do is... Uh, take my heart rate down right away because that is not the correct reaction that you can have in a cave. So have I felt 
sometimes a tingling up my spine and that heart rate going up, yes. And I had to control it immediately to avoid it to evolve into a crashing way on shore. Uh, yes, that's what I had to do. I've had some situation that made me say, well, maybe that part is done. I had, I remember once I was exploring inside the chimney mermaid pond and I was, I took a route and the route was not only very low and very silty, but also had no place where to put the line and the line ended up kind of like hugging the uh, wall of the cave. But mm-hmm. as it did that, it was in a circular motion and so it ended up in what we call a line trap. So the line was going uh, in a part of the cave where it was very hard for me to follow. So on the way out, as I was trying to reel my line, I was exploring. As I was trying to reel my line in, I constantly, every basically three feet, one meter, I found myself pinched into the two walls of the cave. So then I had to extend my arm out and push myself out and then reel the next three feet till I was pinched again, and then push out, and then uh, 17 minutes in, it was almost a 40 minutes out. Wow. And and so, but the last thing you want to do there is become agitated, is actually my breath went further more relaxed, my swimming more, you know, intentional, and my head simply focused on what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy. I remember. I remember my brain. I had to tell her shut up. All all my brain could see, and it was like because I was reading the line back in. It was like, um, it was like this image that kept coming of like as I was reading, I imagined the line being cut and come dead into my line, right? And I was just like, stop! I said the line is just not going to break like that. You're just. But it was interesting that my brain every once in a while will do. Well, what if the line breaks? It's a, uh, it's, it is very much a mind settings. The other day I was surveying a part of Benscape that goes under the road, literally under the road. I was in 18 feet of water. And when this car drove over the road, my entire body shook together with the entire cave. And then I arrived to this area, which I know was already like that. And because of Dorian and the water flow, there was like boulders basically that had collapsed over the line. And so I start trying to extricate the line, to put it back, to try to survey it. And then at a certain point, I start pulling the line and the line was just loose in my fingers and was just falling apart. And it was a simple fact of saying, your trip ends here. So I secure the line and basically left. I'll want to go back there, but I'll go back in with brand new clean line and start from where the line is still healthy and then rerunning. Does it just depend on the environment? And yeah, very good question. Absolutely, and very good point. It depends on the chemicals there are into the water. There's a uh, some of this line that is in this cave has been there since the 1980s and is still viable in certain areas. And then in other areas where there's a flow work or microbial action, some of the line already replaced it like five or six times in the last 10 years. Wow. Uh, there's a cave, the chimney to mermaid is under a heavily polluted area. And in that area, the line actually is as brittle as a thin hair. So when I touch the line, if it's been there for like over a year and I haven't replaced it, I touch the line and it just pops into my hands. A cave line is pretty strong. I mean, you can't pull on it, but it, it's it's very, very durable line. And this one, because of the chemicals in the water, just disintegrates like dust. Mm, amazing. Yeah. If 
somebody wanted to start cave diving, what would you say are three key things they need to think about or consider before they? It is a time commitment. It is a extremely financial commitment. And it has to be something that I absolutely love to do. Those are three things specifically. If they want to figure it out, if they like it or not, there are many places in the world, Bahamas and Mexico being two of them. I'm not familiar with other places. Thailand will be another one where you can go on a cavern tour, like a guided cavern tour. Mm-hmm. And so within the parameters described by the cave diving community, you should still be within sight of the daylight. You can go inside an overhead environment, enjoy like beautiful stalactite and stalagmites and decoration. If you like that, this is what happened with me with my 11th dive. If that is something you like and the darkness attracts you, you're like, oh, I want to go further. I want to see what's there further. That is a good indication that then you could take your cave class. That could be a good way to figure it out if you like it or not if you go inside a cavern and you're thinking that was a great experience but i think i'll stop here then maybe cave diving is not for you i've i've seen all sorts of things i've had two ladies one of them absolutely phenomenal she has the world record for the most amount of dives on the andrea doria and this is a woman that used to dive the andrea doria on air without a computer She's in her 70s now. I mean, she's a force of nature. She she came here and she told me, oh, love the wrecks, don't really like the caverns. And then we went on the cavern tour and she said, yeah, that's that's good. That's it. Six months later, she's back on the island and said, can we go back to the cavern? (laughs) So it depends on the person. I had another one that told me. Her friend said, absolutely not. I am a open water, shallow water camera kind of person. Comes on a cavern tour, comes out and says, I'm really glad I've done that, but that's okay. Comes back with, you know, with Sally and she says, I'm going to do another cavern tour. Next thing you know, she signs up for my cavern class and passes with absolutely flying colors. I mean, just absolutely beautiful diver. She stopped at the cavern level, and the cavern level made her a better open water and ocean diver. So never say never, but, like, if you really want to go into cave diving, it's time, it's money, and it has to be a passion. Have you got many more dive systems to explore on the islands? There's uh, many more dive areas to verify if they have potential caves yes there's mm. about 60 50 something of them we had 68 on the list and we'll be slowly taking them off but yes there's and as technology improves there's like more work to do you know like creating these interactive maps or creating 3d maps so going back to system where before we just did a stick map and now being able to do a three-dimensional map it's actually uh, pretty amazing and rewarding but yes there's still quite a lot of work to do, do you use laser for any of that no, no laser. I use a system. So the laser system, there's a quite a quite a very advanced out there. I mean, I've been on a expedition on the Channel Islands with Bob Ballard in which they were using AI. They were testing AI. And then they were testing laser Prometheus and launches lasers and all of that. Things like that were even used nearly 30 years ago in Wakala 2 project. Yeah. Um, but what I'm using is a, something that anyone could actually financially afford, and it's called NEMO. And what it does, it measures uh, length 
of the lines. So you can clip yeah. it onto the line, measures the lines, and automatically inside measures the depth and the azimuth. You just have to calibrate it. And used in a certain way, together with the software, it gives you a map used in a different way together with uh, the same software, but in a different, it can give you a 3D map and yeah. use in an additional way, which is the one we've been testing since uh, July last year, it can actually give the interactive map. So it's a live map on which people can click on. And it's as the line, the dot travels on the stick map, the video opens and is as if you were swimming down the tunnel in that specific. And you can see where you are in the cave. The advantage of Nemo is that it is fairly inexpensive. In, in a big scheme of cave diving gear, it's less than a cave. It's about the price of a cave diving light. And with the software and the license allows you to do these more advanced things. There, like I said, there's amazing things out there, but they're like so advanced and so expensive. They're still at expedition and experimental level. What I like about Nemo is that it's in your hands as a cave diver and you can come up with some amazing results. I posted some of the videos on Instagrams and on my yeah. website. And I think it's really cool that two cave divers alone on this island can produce so much with like two of these little machines uh, through yeah. the soft. Uh, it's it's not that it hasn't been done before, but the first time it was done, it was done with machines that were worth billions of dollars, millions of dollars. And this one is under a thousand dollars. Cave divers with capabilities can get this, learn the software, put it together and actually bring more information of these caves up to the surface in much less time and that what I found fascinating is it is affordable. So that was episode 12 with Christina Zanato talking about her cave diving. Don't forget to check out the previous episode, episode 11, where Christina talks about her sharks, the Caribbean reef sharks. And we will be back in episode 13 with Christina again, uh, where we have some more chat about general scuba diving. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, A Big Chat. That's a big chat with no spaces, all one word. And you can see footage of Christina with her sharks in the caves. So we look forward to seeing you back on episode 13 with Ian, myself and Christina. 